0: Welcome to another episode of sharkbytes.net, where we delve into issues of tech leadership in the public sector. Please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts or simply go to sharkbytes.net. Here now is our host, Dr. Alan Shark, Executive Director of the Public Technology
1: Institute, now a division of Fusion Learning Partners.
0: Hi there, I'm Alan Shark, and welcome to SharkBites.net. You know, as you're well aware, October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month, and for the past, past decade, cyber has ranked as the number one concern among tech leaders in the public sector, I would probably say the private sector as well. And while the survey results may not have changed much, the threat landscape has. So today we are fortunate to have Rob Reynolds, who is the CISO of the city of Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome, Rob. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So as I look at your background, you have been the uh, chief information security officer of the city of Raleigh for just under two years. But prior to that, you were the chief information security officer. I'm sure you didn't have that title that whole time, but you were responsible for security for some almost 18 years. So you are considered absolutely one of the pioneers in the field. Um, before CISO became popularized. So I think that's very cool. You're someone who apparently loves to go to school because as I read things, you have a couple of master degrees uh, and uh, from the University of Maryland, global campus and business administration um, and uh, and, uh, and BS in information systems management and MS in cybersecurity, um, BS in the University of State of New York, Um, but close to my heart, you are a certified government CIO uh, in one of our great programs in North Carolina. So you are also a CG CIO. You're a CISO uh, certified by uh, by CISP. And uh, so all these things help us get a better sense of the lens in which you see things. And as you know, we always start these programs by saying, hey, Rob, how'd you get interested in technology? Because it just, you know, very few of us have a straight path to our careers. Sometimes in the beginning is critical. Was it a school, a teacher, a parent, other? What got you into this field at a very young age? That's a great
1: question. And I am a lifelong learner, Alan. I I, I continue to learn every day, every way. And um, for technology my pat started when I was around 13 years old. Um that's you know, I'm gonna date myself. This is going way back uh into the 80s. Um Commodores were just coming out and those were all the rage back then.
0: And hey, I had um, a K pro two, incidentally. So <laughs>
1: okay, okay, yep, yep. And so I had my eyes on a Commodore Vic 20 which was very, very expensive back then. And I uh, talked my mother into buying one for me and she bought me one for Christmas. And I was hands on keyboard on that thing, probably more times than I should have been. And I would stay up all night late at night. Back then they used to have um, magazines that would come out that would have the listings of code in the back. And I used to stay up all night long and type this stuff in just so I could see this game or, this application run and then i realized i had no way to save it right and so i would have to shut it off and then start again you know until i got a job and was able to buy some way to back this thing up so that's really how how it all started once once i got into all that the coding and you know all of the technology it i was i was bitten by the bug right and so my career took off from there into actually the corporate world in um, in executive management and, and wholesale and importing. So it was not even in technology, but I was always the go-to computer guy of the office, right? So anybody would come to me for any type of things to do for computers. And then eventually I said, you know what? I'm really going to make the transition after being in wholesale importing uh, for about 12 years, I made the transition into technology full-time. And um, and here I am today.
0: So uh, here you are, a successful career in the private sector. What attracted you to going into the public sector? That's a big difference.
1: It is. It's a marked difference. And um, so I had what well, was at the time I was living in the state of Florida and there was an opportunity to work with the state um, in a cooperative um, type of agency it was federal and state. Um, and so I really enjoyed um, the environment. I thought that the cause was, you know, something that I would be uh, supportive of. And I, I, I climbed aboard. board and I loved working for government. I love the, the way it functions. I, I love the way, you know, where I could actually see the fruits of my labor, right. Knowing that, um, you know, I to give you an example. So like walking down the streets of Raleigh or in Chapel Hill, if I see a police car on the side of the road or a fire truck going to an emergency, we could tie that back to the things we're doing in it, right? Whether it's it, it security, and it's a really uh, giving back and helping the community to me is something I'm very, very passionate about. And it's just a fulfilling role. Right. And so that's what keeps me in uh, the public space uh, I enjoy it so much, and, and glad to make that contribution.
0: And your enthusiasm, let alone your skills, really shine here. So, as we know, it's unfortunate that we have to rethink cybersecurity every October. But it, we'll we'll take every every excuse we can to remind people of their responsibilities. You know, once upon a time, not that long ago, it was somebody like you. Um, that was considered the one responsible for all cybersecurity. Now, of course, you have that title, all CISOs do, which means that is your primary uh, concern. Um, but I think many uh, staff within especially local government felt, oh, that's IT, you know, or that's the CISO. You know, they're the ones whose job it is is to keep us safe. Um, we now know that there's much more of a whole of government process involved here. Your thoughts on that?
1: You're absolutely right. So I think, you know, years ago, um, and maybe in some organizations today, there may be this um, this perception of, you know, well, security, the security guys will handle that, security girls will handle that, it's the CISO's job. But I think that we're starting to see more of a um, transition into this shared responsibility, right? And I think it's a culture change, right? That's something that I'm always banging the drum on. Uh, you know, besides my security awareness training m- mantra that I'm using, I'm also promoting this shared responsibility model, right? So. If you think about it, a great analogy here is, you know, neighborhood watch type of thing, right? So if you're familiar with that concept, you know, you see something, say something. Well, it's the same thing in in cybersecurity, right? We all go to work, we're we're doing our thing. If we see something that's strange, we need to tell someone, right? Report it somewhere. And I think we all have this responsibility to just know that, you know, we're behind the keyboard. We need a baseline fundamental um, skill set, basically of knowing what we're looking at. Is that safe? Is it not? We all don't need to be cybersecurity security experts, but we just need to know that you know what our actions, what actions we're we doing behind the keyboard can affect our organization. Right. So if we see something, say something, stop, think, we all get very busy. And it's so easy to get tripped up by emails that may be malicious. They're very well written today. It's not like years ago where, you know, they were pretty evident that this was, you know, not a good thing to click on. Um, But, you know, stop, think, take your time. If you're not sure. Error in this uh, error on the side of safety. Tell someone, check it out. Don't click.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think people are sometimes surprised to learn that 90% uh, of all intrusions and attacks are due to human error. And so that shows, you know, uh, another way, another way of showing uh, that is someone's carelessness. You know, I always say, don't be too quick to click. <laughs> and right. which is really hard when you think about it. You know, you look at some people just typing away, uh, uh, driving their cars and texting, answering emails in the weirdest of places, not really thinking. So you're right. it's It's got to be a, a change in the mindset. Of course, it also requires support at the very top. You know, somebody at the uh, the city, county level who's going to say, this is this is the behaviors that we expect of everybody. So when we look at cybersecurity, we, I mentioned the, uh, the landscape has shifted uh, and it will continue to shift. What do you think are the biggest concerns when it comes to cybersecurity, the big issues? And then we're going to drill into a couple of smaller ones. Well, not smaller, but more uh, defined ones.
1: Sure. So the, the biggest issues I see today uh, in, in terms of threats are they, they're the same as they have been in the last few years, right? We see the ransomware threats that are out there. We see um, extortion. Um, you know, those are the biggest ones that, that are out there right now. And there's really, you know, there's really no way around that. It's a great business model for the adversary. Um, they'll lock your data up, and they're expecting to get paid. I mean, how you know? Uh, there's no way. There's no way to really avoid that other than being prepared, and that's one of the things that you know is really important. You, you there's only a certain degree to where you can avoid a disaster, right? Um, the, the more important. Uh, component of that is being prepared, right? And making sure that your users are educated, making sure that you have the proper backups and you have more than one place to go for those backups that are immutable, they're safe, they're verified, and then you could actually restore from that backup. So those are the things that are really, really important. And that's like the major threat that we see on the threat landscape that's out there now um, in terms of um, other areas of concern in cybersecurity, s- staffing and recruiting is a major one for us, for, for I think anyone, whether you're in public sector or even private sector. Uh, public sector is a little difficult. Uh, we don't have the same challenges as private sector. Private sector is able to pay much more than right. than we can on the public side. Uh, but attracting those right folks and, and retaining them, it can be a challenge. Right. And I don't know, you see all these numbers about these, this, you know, 10 million jobs available that are unfilled for cybersecurity. I don't know if, you know, that's accurate or not. I can't tell you it's very difficult to find folks. So I think, you know, as, as an industry, I think we need to do a better job in bringing those people in and kind of bringing them up. Right. Maybe they don't have all the experience or, um technical skills, but if they have great soft skills and there's someone that we feel that we can really bring along, I think that would help it, you know, to um fulfill that pipeline for us for the future, for the leaders of the future.
0: You know, I've heard that number too. And I've uh I've often uh responded when people say, what should my kids be thinking about? And I said cybersecurity or data science. And right. those are your two fastest growing and to some extent they're 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 somewhat related. Um the city of Raleigh is is known for innovation. Um, one of the former PTI board members was actually the CIO of city of Raleigh for a bit. Um, what about some of the smaller jurisdictions? I mean, you have your challenges, but some of the smaller jurisdictions where it's a one-person operation, what do you see the future there to be? And, and I say that with sympathy because we have some members that have a one-person show, maybe two staff, um, and and the pressure is so... Uh, Unbelievable. So much is expected of them. They're only human. And and I'm I'm fearful. And maybe this is a good thing that more smaller local governments are going to have to align with larger organizations, perhaps like yours, to have some kind of shared service or turn to uh, the private sector uh, to provide some of those services. Your thoughts?
1: you are exactly right so a smaller organization that may have one or two IT people right they're really stretched to the maximum right so not only are they tasked with operational um tasks that they're doing every day to keep the lights on but they also have to worry about the the cybersecurity component and we I think we all know that there's an ex, there's a limit to what we all can do right there's only so many hours in a day and so much that we can do and And also, do we even have the skills in-house to make sure that we're protected, right? The good news is that there's a lot of ways to leverage um, outside help. And and many times it's actually at no cost. CISA will offer some great um, resources that smaller organizations can take advantage of. Uh, even larger organizations they you know there's there's web scans there's there's just a they offer so much that can add to your security program
0: let's add ms isac to that list even though they're part of C- I mean exactly. ms isac is in our and i just want you know pti's logo is on there as a partner for the last decade so we're strong supporters and i'm surprised more people don't belong i mean their numbers are good but it's like well it's free it can't be good i go no it's good
1: (laughs) no it's great i mean those resources they they just add to your program and it's also a place to go to get more information or to maybe talk to others and see Mm -hmm. hey you know we have this problem how would you how would you do this what have you done in the past so things like that i mean can really help smaller organizations and then of course if the you know Managed service providers is another area where they could have some staff augmentation, right, to make sure that they're getting that coverage. So that I really feel for small organizations because I know how difficult the job is and I have a lot of resources. So I could only imagine how difficult, you know, of a position it could put someone in a municipality that may be smaller. And I do, you know, do feel for them.
0: So let's switch to some of the uh, more contemporary issues other than the ones you've mentioned. Zero trust. The federal government has basically mandated all federal agents adhere to a zero trust uh, kind of policy or posture. There's a lot of confusion. Um, some people have very simplistic views of what zero trust. It's only ID management. Others have a much more um, comprehensive, a deeper view First of all, a couple of questions related to it. how do you define zero trust in terms of how it will apply to your city? Uh, how are you embracing it, and how deep do you go when you think of it? As opposed to, is it just identity management? There's some other moving parts.
1: There is, and I think a lot of the confusion uh, stems from the fact that some some there's there's this perception that zero trust can be implemented by having some type of product or a solution and and there is your zero trust right and it's much much more than that zero trust is is a is a security um, framework a methodology right that there has a lot of different components to it identity being a major portion of that mm-hmm. and basically what what zero trust is is that no user is trusted on the network. You have to continuously authenticate and validate who you say you are. And that is something that, you know, to implement with a small organization may be able to do it sooner, but that's a multi-year effort to really do it right, right? to uh, to have this zero uh, trust environment. It's an undertaking, I think it's a good undertaking because it, it does um, provide a, a, a extra layer of uh, security for the organization, it makes it difficult for the adversary, uh, but you know, this is something that it really needs to be done intentionally and uh, methodically to make sure that you're implementing it correctly and you have end-to-end protection and there are no gaps.
0: So beyond the identity management, others are saying, well, they're applying it to mean what kinds of data flows are associated with that profile. So on one hand, you're identifying who you are, confirming who you are. Hopefully everything is encrypted, as you say, end to end. But the other part of it is is kind of the forensics that go with it in terms of being able to understand the relationship between an individual and the data that they may be accessing and doing something with.
1: Right. Absolutely, absolutely. Data flows are very important, and, and that also, you know, it goes back to your data governance, right? Do you have a good data governance program in place? I, I um, I'm not sure. You know, in my probably almost 30 years of being in this space, you know, I could probably count on maybe one and a half hands of where I've seen really, really well done data governance, mm. and it's not because people. Don't want to do it. It's just a hard thing to do and maintain, yeah. right? So, but I think that does absolutely play a large part in that zero trust.
0: Yeah. So let's turn to another topic that's uh, all the buzz, artificial intelligence. I've done many, many articles. Uh, I've done some research on it. PTI recently uh, released a study on it and and the like. Uh, when it comes to artificial intelligence, how do you see that linked to cyber?
1: I, I, well, I see a benefit and I also see a threat, um, mm. right? So I, I see a benefit in um, that generative AI such as Chat GPT can be helpful in our everyday tasks that we do, right? So no matter what our role, I, I really think that it can be used as a tool, just like we use any other tools. But along with tools, uh, tools can be dangerous, uh, right, if they're not used in the right way. And one of the things that I've noticed with uh, with ChatGPT or any tool like that is that we have to really be intentional uh, about how we're using it. So, for an example, right? Uh, I know recently I've had a lot of discussions um, concerning the use of G- uh, of uh, generative AI. What should be put in those prompts? You know, what kind of information are we putting in? And I think that, you know, there definitely needs to be policy around it. But I think immediately organizations should really consider guidelines first, right? Because policy, it's going to take a little bit to create policy. You know how that can go in organizations. It takes a little bit to get a policy out there. But I don't know that we all have the the enough answers to the questions that we have to create a good policy immediately, Having guidelines, I think, is more is the most important thing to do now. Make sure that, you know, folks are not putting in any type of PII, personal identifiable information, credentials. If they're creating code, um, have that code looked at and vetted by someone that really understands what that code is going to do, right? Because I think, you know, if we have folks that are using this to make code and to generate code, we don't want them to exceed their uh, skill set by generating code that they may not understand. And then we run it and then we have a bad outcome. Right. Or, or let's say, you know, the generative AI malfunctions, or maybe it's compromised. I, I, you know, I don't know what could happen, but I do know that we need to limit the risk and just have human eyeballs vet, whatever you're doing within the AI, especially if you're running um any type of code generation it's just you know it to me that makes sense so the guardrails to me having those guidelines is very very important protect your organization
0: and where are you in the maturity level on that? Has the city adopted guidelines yet or are you working on something like that
1: we are working on something like that at, at the current time that is correct
0: okay. good so you've been a CISO before the title even uh was bestowed on you you have a you you've served in that function for, what, 30 some odd years. How do you see the role of the CISO evolving? I mean, it's really become a very important professional position. We just learned the other day that uh, the state of New Jersey is mandating that every local government have a CISO by 2025. (laughs) They don't say how it's going to be funded, but nevertheless, clearly the role is necessary, important. How is that? changed over the years what have you seen what are the major changes that you see in the profession that you're now part of
1: yeah i i unfortunately date uh back to before the word cso even existed mm-hmm. before sure. even the word cybersecurity existed right it was um, network security
0: so, it was network security if that. right
1: right exactly and um the, I've served in, role, in, in that role, I've, I, I was a CIO, uh, advisory CIO, interim CIO, so I've held a lot of hats. And what I've noticed, the, uh, the trending right now for CISO is is becoming more of, um, there's two types of CISOs. You have a really technical CISO, and then you have a administrative executive CISO. And I think that the, the, the trend right now is somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. is going to be the right mix but it needs to be someone uh, the the, tr- the trend that, that that I'm noticing is that we're looking at folks that are going to be able to speak to the board right the board is where they need to go and advise the the board the council depending on you know what sector you're in on how cybersecurity should be evolving i, I think some people are even using the word bso now Like business information security officer. Uh, Interesting trend that I've seen um, also. And i read about this, and it's actually been on LinkedIn a few times. I don't know the direction this is going to take, though. But there are some organizations now that are having their CIOs report to CISOs. I don't know if you've seen that or not. No. Um, yeah. It, it, there was a few articles written on that. I don't know how that'll work or how that's going to shake out, but uh, but I do think that you know the the CISO today needs to really take a holistic view, understand the business. And really understand the threats and learn how to mitigate and and manage risk and communicate that risk to the board, to the council, so that those folks can go ahead and make the decisions that are going to protect the the organization. So important.
0: Rob, you've given us a lot to think about. I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us and to share your views. that last point has got me thinking, who reports to who in a world where we have so <laughs> many chiefs, chief data officer, chief knowledge officer, chief evidence officer, chief innovation officer. It's getting a little confusing out there and the troops are restless. So we shall see. Rob, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Alan. I'm glad to be here.
0: Well, thanks for joining us as we focus on Cybersecurity Awareness Month both parts one and two and beyond. It is a time to reflect and think about all the things that have changed over the years, things that we have to prepare for for the coming future, which is right upon us. So with that, as I always say, please be safe digitally and personally. You've been listening to another episode of SharkBytes.net. Please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts or simply go to SharkBytes.net. And if you or someone you know has a story to tell, please let us know.